Mike Rowe here with a few thoughts on my favorite sweatshirt, a classic zip-up hoodie that used to be navy blue but has since faded to what the fashionistas call a distressed indigo. It's 13 years old, soft as a flannel bathrobe, and after a few hundred dirty jobs, demonstrably and undeniably indestructible. This is the kind of sweatshirt girlfriends like to permanently borrow, but I've held on to this one because I got it from American Giant. American Giant makes all their stuff right here in the USA so they can control every link in their own supply chain. That matters because when you buy American Giant, you not only get great quality, you create jobs for people in factory towns all over the country. No pressure, but if you give a damn about the business of making things in America, you got to support the companies who are doing it right. Go to American-Giant.com slash Mike to get 20% off your first order. That's American-Giant.com slash Mike. Let's talk about how these lifestyle habits and behaviors can affect our mood. So a lot of people separate the two, right? And you probably encounter this all the time. Like all of these things I do, these habits I have, this food I eat, that's completely separate from how I feel and how I think. That's a great point. We always like to separate the mind and the body. You know, it's <laughs> always what people do is if they're two totally separate things, but we're just one being, everything's together. You are listening to Veggie Doctor Radio, and this is episode number 202. Welcome to Veggie Doctor Radio. I am your host, Dr. Yami, board-certified pediatrician, certified lifestyle medicine physician, certified health and wellness coach, author, speaker, mother, wife, and human being. I passionately believe in the power of diet, habits, and mindset in sparking and sustaining well-being and joy in our lives. This podcast combines expert interviews and thoughtful monologues to explore plant-based nutrition, lifestyle medicine, parenting, mindset, and other exciting and fun topics. I hope that these episodes inspire you, uplift you, and equip you with the knowledge and tools to live your best life. Are you ready to get started? Let's do it. Welcome back, veggie lovers, to another episode of Veggie Doctor Radio. Well, today I have a listener question that I'm going to answer. And I also have Dr. Kristen Giallo, who is a psychiatrist. We have a great conversation about the microbiome and the gut-brain connection, and I know you're going to love it. But before we get to that, I want to answer a listener question. So this question is from Heather. Heather, thank you for being a loyal listener of Veggie Doctor Radio. Heather writes, I listen to your podcast frequently. I was wondering if you could help me address one thing. I get a lot of feedback from people who refer to plant-based diets as quote weird or quote abnormal. Once I was even called a communist which I didn't get the joke if it was one. What do you say to people who give you a hard time? All right, Heather, so I'm gonna be honest here and say that people don't give me a hard time. And I wonder if it's because I, I don't know, I feel like I have some sort of aura that protects me from a lot of that stuff. I have been called intimidating in the past. I am fairly tall, so I'm about five foot nine, big hair often, I don't know. Maybe it protects me from those sort of things um, or I project some sort of confidence that makes it so that people don't 
typically mess with me about these sort of things. However, I thought about your question and I thought about how I might respond or some of the ways that I might respond to it. Of course, there's the option of not responding at all and just changing the subject or walking away or whatever it is. There's really no right or wrong approach to these kinds of things. You're just gonna have to find the way that works for you. Okay, one of the things I learned about any kind of lifestyle change or anything that you're doing that's different from other people is that really when people are coming at you, a lot of times it's because it's provoking insecurities in them or they're feeling defensive because they think that maybe you're going to judge them because they're not wanting to do the same thing or they don't feel capable of doing the same thing as you are. So just having a little empathy and a little compassion for others as well and coming to it from that place. So one of the things that you could say, like somebody is like, oh man, that is so weird that you do that. You could say, you know, initially I thought that too, and I didn't think I could ever do this, but here I am and it's going pretty well. And then the conversation may keep going on. They may ask you questions. They may become curious or you may change the subject. So that's one of the things you could say. Another thing you can say is don't worry. I'm not judging you and I don't expect everybody to go vegan. And that kind of just helps people calm down so that they know that you're not out there thinking that they're bad because they're not vegan or doing the same thing that you are. So that's one potential thing. As far as the communist thing, um, I mean, that that's a tough one, but maybe one of the ways I might respond is by laughing and saying, hmm, that's funny. I guess sometimes I do kind of want to live on a hippie vegan commune. And I'm just saying that for myself because sometimes I kind of do want to live on a vegan hippie commune. It's not the same thing as communism, but you know, you can make it funny. Another thing you can say to somebody that says that what you're doing is weird or abnormal, you can say, you know, it's working for me so far. I don't know how long it'll last, but we'll see. And finally, I guess one thing you could say if you wanted to be a little bit stronger and more vocal is I guess I don't mind being weird if it aligns with my values. So those are some options of things that you can say if people call you weird or abnormal or that you are trying to uh, be a communist by eating a plant-based diet. I don't get it either, but those are some ideas and hopefully that was helpful for you, Heather. And thank you so much for writing in. If you have questions for me that you want me to answer on the show or not, you could just email me. Yami, Y-A-M-I at dryami.com, D-O-C-T-O-R-Y-A-M-I.com. I welcome listener feedback and requests. So thank you so much. Remember that the information on this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. It is not meant to replace careful evaluation and treatment. So if you have concerns about you or your child's eating, nutrition, growth, please consult a healthcare professional. So let me introduce Dr. Kristen Giallo. Dr. Giallo is president and CEO of B Medicine LLC, a mental health and lifestyle medicine clinic located in Maryland that utilizes evidence-based practices to prevent, treat, and reverse chronic health problems. Dr. Giallo is board certified in both psychiatry and lifestyle medicine. Before starting her practice, she specialized in treating a variety of mental illnesses, including mood, psychotic, and cognitive disorders. As she has developed in her career, Dr. Giallo has a special focus on the gut-brain axis and the microbiome. She lectures at academic institutions and gives talks at corporate wellness events at companies like SiriusXM and has spoken on a variety of podcasts. Dr. Giallo is also 
trained yoga instructor and ran yoga programs for patients at previous hospitals she has worked. And in this episode, we discuss her journey into psychiatry and lifestyle medicine, how her own diet and knowledge of nutrition has changed her practice. We talk about the relationship between anxiety and movement and how we can help ourselves feel better through daily movement. We talk about the gut microbiome and the gut microbiota, how it affects the brain. And we talk about the field of psychiatry, what other psychiatrists are doing in this area if they're coming on board with lifestyle medicine, what frustrates her the most about modern psychiatry. We talk about some of the associations she's seen between the gut and the brain. And we talk about her journey in yoga and how that can be applied for mental health, and what she wishes more people knew. We also get a little insight into what her favorite foods are. So it's a great episode. I think you'll really enjoy it. Learn some things you haven't learned, some things that I was surprised by, some stats that I didn't know. And it's a wonderful episode. So if you love hearing from Dr. Giallo, you can find her at bmedicine.org. She sees patients for psychiatry in Maryland and Virginia, but she also does health coaching for anybody. So reach out to her if you want to connect with her and if you think that she could help you on your journey. Veggie lovers, thank you so much for joining me today. I hope that you have a very plantastic day and let's welcome Dr. Kristen Giallo to the show. Welcome Dr. Kristen Giallo to Veggie Doctor Radio. I'm so glad you're here. Thanks for having me. So this is going to be fun because I actually haven't gotten into some of these subjects. Can't believe it's been 200 episodes and we haven't talked about the gut-brain connection. So I'm really excited to get into that. But before we get into that, I want to hear more about your background. First of all, what attracted you to psychiatry? Thanks for that question. You know, I would say that the thing that attracted me the most to psychiatry was really the time that I got to spend with patients and the team atmosphere of it. You know, during medical school, I wasn't expecting on going into psychiatry. I actually thought I was going to be an oncologist, so a Mm. cancer doctor, which is very different. Um, I had done clinical trials research at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York City and in breast and lung cancer. And that was my expectation. I was going to medical school to be a cancer doctor. So in my third year, um, that's when you start your clinical rotations in medical school. My very first rotation was internal medicine. And I was very excited. And when I got there, I hated it. (laughs) I just did not like it at all. It it was not what I was necessarily expecting. And I, I hated waking patients up at like six in the morning and talking to them for five minutes on rounds. And Um, You know, of course, we were helping people, you know, taking care of very ill patients with acute crises, um, but it just to me felt like something was missing in patient care the way I would want to deliver it. So my psychiatry rotation was my last core of third year, and I just really clicked with it. I loved how much time we got to spend with patients. I loved how team-oriented the specialty was, and I just really loved kind of taking a deep dive into a patient and their life circumstances um, that helped me to understand the behaviors that they might have been struggling with or the troubles in their life. And um just learning more about people is very important to me. So I felt like with more information and time, I could make the biggest change and impact for a patient. That's beautiful. It reminds me of my journey a little bit because that same thing happened to me in that I thought I was going to do something else. I did research in something else and I actually left my pediatric rotation for my last one because I knew for sure I wasn't going to go into pediatrics. (laughs) (laughs) That works. Like It's like one of those things and we're so young and we don't 
know ourselves as well. But yeah, that's that's so cool how you were able to go into the rotation and really feel it out for yourself and say, you know, this fits me better. I like this approach. I like going in depth. I don't like the quick five minutes. And internal medicine is intense though. My husband is an internist and mm. I don't, I could not do his job. Like the problem lists and it's just like the bazillion medications that the patients are on. It's so complicated. That's so true. Well, that's a very interesting story. So tell me about now lifestyle medicine. At what point in your journey did you learn about lifestyle medicine? And when did you start integrating it into your psychiatry path? So it's really kind of a two-pronged um, situation that ended me in lifestyle medicine. So one is obviously my kind of clinical experience and my experience with patients. And the other is more of a personal experience and kind of my life experience. So first, I'll just start by talking a bit more about the professional side of it. Um, you know, so I did my academic training at University of Maryland Medical Center in Shepherd Pratt in Baltimore. And I always loved kind of learning and teaching and being in an academic environment. Um, and one of the cool things about the brain and still the body in general, but there's still so much kind of learn and know. And in residency, that's where kind of my passion for the gut-brain connection started to happen. I always loved doing a lot of reading and was reading a lot of research that was coming out um, by John Cryan and Jane Foster at the time. And as a result, I put together a lecture on the gut-brain and started giving it to residents. And then that's continued on. And, and my thoughts about how the body is such an interconnected system, rather than thinking of specialties as, oh, I'm a cardiologist, I'm a GI doctor, I'm a psychiatrist, like the body is working together. And so it just really harnessed that connection a lot more for me. And so along my training um, and work experience, I obviously came across a variety of patients that helped to push me even more into lifestyle medicine. So in the beginning of my career, I worked mostly with people struggling with significant psychotic and cognitive disorders. So illnesses like schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, as well as extreme developmental disabilities and dementia. And a mainstay of treatment for many of these illnesses is antipsychotic medication. For those of you familiar with antipsychotics, they can obviously be amazing medications and work for many people and help them with life altering illnesses. Um, but like all meds, uh, there are side effects. And one of the unfortunate side effects of these medications is metabolic syndrome. So developing things like diabetes, weight gain, high cholesterol. So this was something that I started to see very frequently in the patients I was working with. And I was hoping to be able to help these patients more with these developments, being that often these meds were something that they could not live without. Um, but the development of these metabolic syndromes was also not desired and providing them with other troubles. And so I wanted to help provide other realistic strategies and education to help mitigate these risk factors. So this was another reason that extra training in lifestyle medicine started to seem uh, like an important path for me to take. That's so cool. And yeah, I remember my psychiatry rotation and feeling frustrated about that, feeling like, wow, these medicines can really help a lot of people. But it was in such a large percentage of people that took those medications that started to experience health problems because of it. So it's interesting that you were able to take that, but also take it a step further and, and think, okay, what else can I do now instead of just being frustrated by this? So obviously you're a problem solver and you care a lot about your patients. How about your personal journey and your knowledge about nutrition and diet? How has it shaped you and your practice? Yeah, so this is the other part of that. Um, so 
you know, I think I've actually always had difficulties with obsessing over food and my body and diets and all of that myself. You know, when I was a kid, I was on the chubbier side and was in diet programs at a young age. And that never left me feeling very good about myself. I remember being kind of in middle school and high school and going to LA weight loss. Um, and they love to take the before photo of you, which I find kind of cruel, even in hindsight, I don't understand where that idea seemed to be actually helpful to like take a photo of you that goes up on a wall. And it just is somewhat shaming. And, and then they give you this diet that you're supposed to start with. And I remember I had to eat plain chicken and like brown rice and some broccoli. And they would give you these protein bars, these processed chocolate protein bars that you had to eat twice a day as a snack, right? So that might be fine for like a day or two, but I was also a kid, you know, and I'm not going to go to school and eat these things. You just kind of want to fit in. It doesn't really make any sense. It's not sustainable. So of course that didn't last long, but it's stuck in my mind, right? So as I got older and went to college and medical school, I found a better rhythm of eating healthy and what that looked like for me. And, and also, um, doing physical activity and how important that was and something I enjoyed. But of course, like kind of all paths in life, there's ups and downs and I start residency and I struggled again, right? You know, I gained 30 pounds and I wasn't very physically active and I was working all the time. So I'm sure you can relate to. So I just wasn't feeling right, like in my body and I wasn't having any time to do physical activity. So when I left residency, again, that's when I was able to kind of regain control of my life a bit more. And that's when I really started to fall into plant-based eating. I always kind of questioned these diets that I tried in the past and that people would recommend to me um, in the past and ones that just never seemed totally sustainable or enjoyable to me. Um, you know, food is supposed to be fun and exciting and not restrictive and a chore. And you don't want it to be something that you're going to grow to despise or end up having a lot of anxiety over. So I just thought there had to be other options for healthy eating beside what seemed like these high protein fads. And that's what led me to more research, right? I, I love academics. I love reading. I love evidence. And so this led me to evidence-based literature behind the whole whole food plant-based eating thing and how, how great it was for your body on so many different levels. So from this, you know, I was able to lose those 30 pounds. I was able to be back at my kind of my more stable weight and feeling great about food. And I felt much less conflicted and restricted when it came to food, which is always interesting, right? Because when I talk about this with patients at first, you know, because people will come to me and that's kind of what I focus on now a lot is, is lifestyle change and helping people get through that. Um, but when people come to me and I introduce these concepts, um, they might always think that they're jumping into something that's more restrictive, which is so interesting because when you think about chicken, beef, and like fish, those are just three things, you know, they're just three things, but you would think that there's so much more. And in fact, when you're eating whole food plant-based, like you're eating so many more foods, it actually opens up the, what you can do so much more. Um, but I think it's just the way our society and our food system is structured. And that's kind of the perception people have in that they're actually losing something instead of gaining something. So this is really when I started to appreciate the importance of lifestyle factors on health. I mean, I was always saying these things to patients, right? Eat more fruits and vegetables exercise more, you want to sleep better. Um, but when you actually see the impact of lifestyle factors on your own life, um, I think that it helps to transform the meaning behind the words that we're sharing. So my story is very similar too. We have a lot of things that align in our lives, but mm. I started my first diet when I was around nine. Mm. And it was, you know, now in hindsight, thinking back on it, how the female body changes over time too. I think there's a lot of kids that are around that time, especially girls that 
prepubescent body changes that we get. And then our family panics. And I see this a lot too in my patients and um, the parents like, is, is the weight okay? Do you, you know, do we need to change anything? This kind of thing. And um, this obsession with body size, but then that triggers dieting, which can trigger other adverse complications and, you know, body dissatisfaction, all of that stuff. If you could go back to your little middle school self and talk to your middle school self and talk to your family at that time, what would what do you wish would have been different? So what I wish would have been different is I think there was this idea that if you could just control your eating, you know, yeah, there's cookies around. Yeah, we have all this like processed stuff in that. But if you could just control it, that it would be fine. And I think that one of the biggest things is like your environment, you know, if you're not if you're not buying these things per se and they're not in front of you, you're not necessarily tempted to have them. So I would say just kind of one you know, filling stuff around you with things that are, are are good. So when you're hungry, you can shift over and eat like an orange or, or make some oatmeal or something like that. And I would say number two is that it's like a family affair. And, and this is kind of what I chat about with patients now is that a lot of times there's one person going on this path on their own and things are so hard to do by yourself. You People do what other people are doing around them. That's something I say all the time. And so if your whole family can join in the fun of it and make it exciting and not this like weird thing that somebody's doing at the end of the table and they're cooking for themselves and stuff, you know, it's just so much better. And uh, it's better for everyone. It's not just one journey someone needs to go on. It helps to normalize it. Um, and again, it, it's it's right for everyone, no matter your size, you know, no matter anything else. You know. Yeah. And everybody can feel better together, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, it, and, and I think that's why I like de-emphasizing size itself is because some people may not feel like they need to change their size because they may be already at the size that's endorsed by society or they may not care about that. But I feel like most people do want to feel good, you know? And so what are the lifestyle habits we can practice? What are the sustainable habits and behaviors we can practice that help us feel good more consistently? You know, I think everybody can buy into that one, you know? So thanks for sharing that. How do you think that since you have changed your habits and behaviors around food, how has that changed your body image? Do you feel like you're at a better place with that? I think... I think yes and no, right? I think sometimes, you know, despite how great you might feel and with your actions, you're still in the world around you and there's still these pressures, I think, outside of us that we can't necessarily control. But I think it definitely helps to kind of feel like you've regained control a little bit and and that knowing that what you're doing makes you feel better in so many other ways that no one can take that away from you. You know, when you're sleeping better, when you're, um, have better focus, better energy, you know, all these other things that are really important, better mood. Um, I, I think, um, that is, is very powerful. Thanks for your honesty. And I think one of the things you're getting at is, you know, we live in a world and in a society that heavily promotes a certain body type and, having or attaining that body type buys us social currency. And Mm. we start to associate our self-worth with looking a certain way. And because that's lasted our whole lives, you know, it's really hard to 
untangle ourselves from that. It's really hard to separate ourselves from that. And even when we're feeling good and every other way, there's part of our brain that's still like, yeah, but you know, you could look a little better here. Your hair could look a little better here. Your, your face, less wrinkles, whatever. All of these different standards of beauty that we have around us that that little part of our brain still wants to subscribe to so that we can be fully part of the tribe and accepted mm. into the tribe, mm. you know? That's, mm -hmm. whew, it's complicated. All right, well, speaking of mood, let's talk about how these lifestyle habits and behaviors can affect our mood. So a lot of people separate the two, right? And you probably encounter this all the time. Like, you know, all of these things I do, these habits I have, this food I eat, that's completely separate from how I feel and how I think. So can you describe how the two can be linked together and how you approach this with people and starting to teach them about these things? That's a great point. We always like to separate the mind and the body. You know, that's always what people do is if they're two totally separate things, but we're just one being, everything's together. Um, I think this might be a good opportunity to talk a little bit about physical activity and the impact it can have on mental health. There's so many different directions you could go with this, but I'll just focus on kind of physical activity and the impact it can have on anxiety. Anxiety disorders are really very common. Uh, about 25% of the population has an anxiety disorder at some point in their life. And when I talk about anxiety, I'm thinking about things like panic disorder, generalized anxiety disorder, phobias, so like fear of flying or fear of spiders, right? um, PTSD or OCD. You know, in adults, the recommendation between 18 and, and 64 years of age is 150 minutes of exercise per week. And only about 20% of adults are meeting these guidelines. So it can be really a great place to focus on if it can help with your mood. So increasing physical activity can decrease levels of depression, decrease anxiety, and it can actually help with substance use. It can decrease the frequency of panic attacks. It can also decrease social anxiety symptoms. Uh, it can also improve your sense of well-being. That's equal to mindfulness-based stress reduction, which is also MBSR, which is a kind of a type of therapy or focus for people that are struggling with all kinds of, of uh, mental struggles. It can decrease uh, people's sense of worry or anxiety. It can improve sleep, which is so important for mental health. When people are not sleeping well, um, they're not doing well in many avenues. And, and also it can help with a feeling of mastery or like self-efficacy. So it can help people regain kind of, again, a sense of control in their life. It can help with actual physical strength, with can, which can make you feel more emotionally strong. And it can also help with self-confidence. You know, so that's just one avenue. Just thinking about physical activity and its effect on anxiety as an example, you can think that there's even so many other ways that lifestyle habits can affect all these other avenues of mental health. Wow, that's incredible. You make it sound like a miracle drug, honestly, <laughs> really. But I'll tell you that for me, that is how I use physical activity. Like I like to exercise in the morning. I see patients four days a week. And I know that if I don't at least try to get 15 minutes in, ideally I try to get around 30 minutes in of good vigorous physical activity, but I will do whatever I can to get at least 15 minutes in because I know that I'm going to feel calmer and more centered. I'm, you know, I'm not going to be going off in these tangents in my head about, ah, you know, stressing out about stuff. So it, it's like... I really do, for me, I use it like a little bit of a drug. Like it is mm -hmm. my anxiolytic for the day. 
I feel good. I feel grounded. I'm ready to go. I'm feeling control. Um, and I feel like for a lot of people, what happens with physical activity, which is another reason why I like to de-emphasize body size, mm. is that they've associated movement or physical activity with weight loss or having a certain body type. And because of that, some people have gotten totally burnt out or now they're just like averse to physical activity because they punish their bodies trying to lose weight or whatever, and they only see it for that one reason. So I would love if people just started reframing movement. And that's why I like to call it joyful movement. What can you do to move your body in a way that feels good to you, isn't punishing, and will give you those effects that you want, how you want to feel in your day-to-day life. And I had no clue that anxiety disorders were that common. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. You know, and I love I love what you just shared there. And I like changing and reframe the idea of I have to, to I get to. You know, because when you have to do something, it sounds like a chore. It's something you're dragging your feet to. When you get to do something, you know, that's something that's positive that you are choosing to do because of all the benefits that it gives you, regardless of weight, you know, throw weight out the window, you know. Yeah, I love that. And um, and just for a second here, I'd like to interject and tell listeners that they were doing my deck And now my neighbors are doing something. So there's all kinds of noise at my house. So I apologize for the drilling and the hammering and all the things. But we are getting ready for a good spring and summer around here. Decks and all kinds of stuff going on. Hey, veggie lover. If you are looking for free resources to guide you on your plant-based and healthy living journey, go to dryami.com forward slash free for tons of free downloadable PDFs. Hundreds of people have taken advantage of my tips to help them reduce meat and dairy consumption, navigate eating out, and build satisfying plant-based meals. Download one or download them all. And don't forget to share with friends and family. DrYami.com forward slash free. And now back to the episode. Okay, so let's move on to my next question, which is going to be the biggest of this episode. I want to hear more about the gut-brain connection. But to learn more about that, we got to back up and start at the gut microbiome. So for my listeners that don't know very much about this, can you tell us what is the gut microbiome and how does it affect the brain? Sure. So this is like a huge question and there's so many awesome facets and areas to go with this. So I'm going to try to bring it down to just like an introductory and little, you know, if you've never heard of it, you'll be familiar with it, okay, and how the gut and the brain connect. So first, I'll define like what the microbiome um, is versus something called the microbiota. So these terms get used interchangeably all the time. They actually mean two different things. So the microbiome is talking about kind of bacteria or little organisms that are living on or in your body and their genetic material, whereas the microbiota is just talking about the bacteria themselves. So we have 10 to 100 trillion bacteria living on and in our body and also in our mucosal services. So like mouth, vagina, and the microorganisms in our GI tract. So just in our intestines alone, outnumber human cells 
by a ratio of 150 to 1. So we have 3.3 million microbial genes in our body um, versus only 21,000 human genes. So like a huge difference. Humans are actually 99.9% identical to each other in terms of genome, but the microbiome can be different up to about 80 to 90%. So pretty, pretty amazing. So the gut and the brain can communicate a few different ways. So one is through your endocrine system. So things like um, and if you've heard of cortisol in your body, that's one way that the gut and brain communicate. The second way is the immune system. 70% of our immune system is actually within our GI tract, which makes a lot of sense, right? Because when your body needs to prepare for defense or to fight something we call pathogens that might be entering our body, the most common place they enter is through the mouth. And so they're going to come in contact with your GI system first, and they need to be ready, ready to defend. And so they release chemicals, your immune system, and that also um, triggers the brain. So that's the second way. And the third way is through the nervous system. Actually, there's something called the second brain in your body, and that's also called the enteric nervous system. So your intestines are just covered with nerves. Um, and they function actually in their own little cocoon. You know, it's kind of functioning a little bit independently of the brain, but it's also directly connected. So there's a nerve called the vagus nerve. It's a cranial nerve. It starts from the brain. It's the longest nerve in your body, and it goes all the way down into your stomach. And the interesting thing about this nerve is that it's 80% sensory. So it's actually taking in and sending information to your brain way more than it's actually sending information out. So when we think about the brain, we can also think about certain chemicals like serotonin. I'm sure many of you may have heard of that before. And interestingly, 90% of serotonin is actually produced in your gut. Um, and the majority of receptors for this chemical is, again, in your gut. Um, but we often think of serotonin as being connected just to the brain, but it's doing so many different things in the body. And the main chemical that antidepressants and anti-anxiety medications actually affect is serotonin. And those medications work to increase the functioning. So these are just kind of a few examples to just start to show you how much overlap and communication is happening between our brain and our intestines. And this is really such an interesting area of research right now. And I'm sure that there is going to continue to be more information and findings coming out on these topics. Wow, that's fascinating. I didn't know how different our microbiome can be. So you said 80 to 90% different between individuals? Mm hmm. Yeah. So that's how different it can be. Wow. And that's they're just fascinating. Mm hmm. Yeah. And of course, this research is continuing to be focused on and they're trying to figure out even more ways to understand and investigate the different levels of bacteria because there's so many different strains. So like thousand. Wow. You mentioned the endocrine system and the nervous system and how that is connected to our gut and 90% of the serotonin produced in the gut, which is huge because I think when people think about neurotransmitters are just thinking it's all in the brain and it doesn't go anywhere else. So how does the serotonin in our gut affect our brain? Like how does that work? So that is a tough one. I think so serotonin it can affect how we feel um, in general, like that's what antidepressants or anti-anxiety medications are helping by increasing those levels. And so it's unclear exactly what the levels of serotonin, like let's say you have lots of serotonin in, in your feces, like that's how they kind of determine how much you might have lingering around your gut. There isn't enough information right now to determine like if that correlates exactly to kind of how much would be in your brain. Um, but they do, we do know that serotonin has so many different functions. I mean, it's involved with gut motility, secretions in the gut 
gut, immune system, platelet aggregation. So serotonin is doing an amazing amount of things in the body and, and mood is just one of them. But often we focus so much on the serotonin and mood connection, but it's doing so many things. Um, and so it'll be interesting to continue to see how they keep flushing this specific question out. Because I think a lot of people are interested in the same question that you're asking. You know, is there something we can finagle there, figure out there? Yeah. Okay. Well, that's good that you pointed that out because, yeah, I was also thinking it's mainly just affecting our mood, but I didn't know it was involved in so many other different metabolic functions that are important. Having a versatile, high-quality piece of clothing feels great, but having a whole closet full of favorites feels even better. American Giant puts the quality, durability, and comfort they're famous for into everything you need for your spring days. From premium t-shirts and jeans to lightweight French terry joggers and their legendary best hoodie ever. Get 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com with code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's American-Giant.com, code staple two zero. All right, well, let me take a little detour here and ask you about your field in general. You've started talking about this since residency. So it's been a while that you've been interested in this and started making these connections and wanting to apply them to your patients. But do you feel that other psychiatrists are on board with this, are more starting to recognize the importance of the gut-brain connection and other lifestyle habits or not? So yes, I do think that more psychiatrists are starting to appreciate the importance of lifestyle factors. You know, there are some more well-known people in this space, like Dr. Drew Ramsey. He kind of focuses on nutritional psychiatry, and that's starting to touch over, I think, into the space of gut brain. There's also a book that was recently published in 2019 that you could buy through the American Psychiatric Association um, that was edited by a psychiatrist at Stanford, Dr. Douglas Nordsky, as well as like there were many different contributors to this book. It was big. And it was titled Lifestyle Psychiatry. Uh, and that came out in 2019. So that's also very promising. Plus, I think a number of kind of people I trained with and, and other psychiatrists that I know also received the training through the American College of Lifestyle Medicine and their core competencies program, as well as certificates with T. Colin Campbell's Center for Nutritional Studies. And I think when you think more about nutrition and how we're feeding our bodies and feeding our gut, you start to also then think about the gut-brain connection and start shifting over into some of this focus. And, you know, lastly, I think with the groundbreaking findings and data and focus towards the microbiome, like the more information that comes out and the more research that we're doing is leading psychiatrists and really all physicians to rethink the way we might understand certain illnesses because the microbiome that research actually started with obesity work. And now you start seeing the microbiome and all other aspects of health, you know, uh, so it's really starting to overlap everywhere. So to me, this all indicates that the field is moving in this direction. Yeah, definitely. I feel like now every condition we talk about, we have to think about the microbiome and how it's involved. Okay, so hopefully more psychiatrists are getting on board. We're learning more about it. So at this point, what can you tell us about how we can use the microbiome and the knowledge that we have about the microbiome to our benefit when it comes to our mood and our mental health? So one of the things that I focus on uh, with patients is the importance of fiber. Fiber is now a buzzword, I think, too. Like everyone's talking about fiber, as it should be, because fiber is super important. And one of the things that we're now finding and know is that 
bacteria and certain helpful strains that they're continuing to identify love fiber. And that's how they thrive. Fiber produces something called short chain fatty acids, which they're finding to be such a a beneficial kind of chemical that starts getting circulated in the body. And there's a few different types of short chain fatty acids, but it's just helpful to know that term. And so I really encourage patients to try to bulk up their fiber as much as they can. Often people are only, like the average American's only getting about 15 grams of fiber a day with the standard American diet, right? But the the daily recommended amount is more like 28 or 29 grams. And really you could even go beyond that. I mean, there's estimates I think that our ancestors were eating like a hundred grams of fiber a day. So that's where I think we can focus that can help our overall physical health. And then um, that may go over into our mental health as well. Well, you talked about exercise earlier, which I think is such an important pillar of lifestyle medicine. How does physical activity affect the gut microbiome? So that is a good question. And I don't know how much literature is out there about that specific topic. Um, I'd have to look more into that. I imagine it would be great. I think from what I've read is that it benefits it positively. And just like anything else, if you start to get into levels that might be stressful for your body, that's one thing. But for what's recommended, moderate, vigorous exercise on a regular basis is actually beneficial to the gut microbiome. So that's how everything starts to become interrelated. You know, it's it's doing so many different things for us. What other things do you tell your patients that are other kind of um, habits that they can implement or um, tools that they can use to positively affect their gut microbiome? Well, fiber is definitely number one. I think have you pointed out physical activity. Sleep is also really important in general for our overall health and thinking about digestion and our gut. So, and sleep is important no matter what. I mean, and I think kind of to your point, like you're saying, so many things are connected. It's no surprise when you start seeing, okay, well, um, fiber is good for X, Y, and Z. You know, you end up seeing that it's good for so many different things. Same thing with physical activity. We can say, well, physical activity is good for, you know, your heart and your intestines and your brain. And and I think likely that will be what we find with the gut brain. But there, we're still in so so much of the early stages of figuring out some of these things. Um, And so the the thing that I can most confidently start to talk about with regards to the gut brain is fiber. And, you know, now I will look more into the physical activity effect of it. And then sleep. Sleep is, is very important too for bodily health. Well, fiber is my favorite F word. So I will <laughs> definitely always keep promoting fiber. What frustrates you the most about the state of modern psychiatry and what do you wish could change? You know, I actually just read a study that came out in the American Journal of Psychiatry in their February 2022 edition. So this is hot off the press. And it was titled Trends in Outpatient Psychotherapy Provision by U.S. Psychiatrists from 1996 to 2016. And they found that just over this 20-year period, the percentage of visits involving psychotherapy done by psychiatrists declined significantly. So from 44% in 1996 to 21% in 2015-2016. And in the 2010 to 2016 timeframe, only about half of psychiatrists, about so about 53%, no longer provided 
psychotherapy at all. And I find this really disheartening because one of the aspects that drew me to psychiatry in the first place, like I mentioned earlier, is the amount of time we get to spend with our patients. In other specialties, you know, I always felt rushed and like we didn't get that time that was allowing for maybe the best patient care that we wanted to provide. And I think that the time factor is one thing that has taken over medicine in general, where physicians are only allotted 15 minute follow-ups with patients. And it seems like that's also now crept over into psychiatry as well, where the pressures of the system are just too great, leaving physicians with little time to provide more lifestyle and behavior change with patients, and now even in psychiatry. So we're essentially replacing time with medications. And you know, don't get me wrong, like meds are necessary and important. I mean, I prescribe them all the time and they're, they're very helpful, but I by no means um, think that that's the only solution or the only tool in our toolbox that we can provide. And so it's really a shame that the system is de-incentivizing all these other tools that are so important with time and all the other tools that we have at our disposal. Well, it's really interesting that you brought that up because me as a physician, a pediatrician that refers to specialists, I feel like I've always thought of psychiatrists as pretty much just prescribing medication. I don't know if I know any psychiatrists that do psychotherapy. So I think I'm just going to have to start asking, I guess, because I just assumed that the majority of psychiatrists, well, I guess that's what you're saying now. That is what has changed to anyway. But I wonder how much of it is comfort level. Do you think that because psychiatrists are spending more time basically managing medications, that they've lost some of the comfort level with psychotherapy and push that on to other professionals that focus only on psychotherapy. You know, it's interesting. I think it's both. So I do therapy. So I'm one of those people. You know, I do therapy <laughs> and I do meds because I think it's You're really like, important. You're like, I do therapy. <laughs> it's me. Yeah, I do it. But but so but I think that um, you know, it's both. I, I I think that you get training on therapy in residency. So you get training. That's part of, of what we do. Um but when you go into practice, some of it may be desire. So some people are kind of more, quote unquote, biologically minded or kind of want to focus more on medication management. And that's that's fine. Um, and then uh, some of it, I think, is when you go into a clinic setting. Even in the system now, you're given 20 minutes. If you're going to some sort of big hospital system, they're not giving you an hour with patients. They're giving you 15 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes. And I have some of my colleagues who are like, I don't want to do less than a 30-minute med visit, even if I'm doing meds, because often these situations are so complex and we're trying to take into consideration all of these other factors. But it's really hard to actually find places where they'll even give you a 30-minute med check where you can actually maybe incorporate 15 minutes of therapy or some brief interactions that you're pushed into other ways. And they also, you get um, reimbursed more for med visits than you do for therapy. And so some of it comes down to this like bottom line that systems have. And so then they're saying, okay, well, the social workers will do the therapy, you know, or the psychologist will do it. So there, there's this separation there. And that even if you're a psychiatrist that's capable and can do it, they're not really allowing you to do that. Yeah, I think most of it is the bottom line. Because mm -hmm. modern medicine financially is not sustainable for most systems the way we have mm -hmm. it set up. It's just mm -hmm. really not sustainable. And because of that, we end up getting into these just weird paradoxical situations where what you wanted to do as a doctor is not at all what you're doing as a doctor, you know? So yeah, and that's a whole nother discussion about modern medicine and all the things that we we can change and work on. 
Wow. Okay. Well, I learned a lot about that today. So I think I'm going to start reaching out to my psychiatry referrals and ask them what they are spending time doing because it's right now definitely been so tough with patients and I have a lot that really need med management and of course, psychotherapy. Everybody should have therapy, as my opinion, but you know, mm-hmm. we should just mm-hmm. get assigned one at birth and everybody should just have one throughout their entire life. But it's really tough right now because That's the wait idea. list and trying to get patients in and trying to get more help because I'm comfortable with the basics and the simple stuff, like one med at a time. After that, I'm like, eh, I don't know enough about this. And so I really do appreciate having the the help of my psychiatry colleagues. So thank you for educating me in that area. I'd love to switch gears again and talk about any impressive cases that you've witnessed that you would love to share with us that highlight the power of the gut-brain connection. So I have more interesting maybe correlations that I've noticed in my clinical practice. Um, So many patients I've seen in my past jobs as well as my current clinic have comorbid GI complaints. So I have a lot of people who have like been diagnosed with IBS or inflammatory bowel disease. So their struggle with Crohn's, ulcerative colitis, chronic constipation and recurrent hemorrhoids. Um, And I also of people who have had these kind of GI complaints and they've gotten worked up by GI and everything's come back quote unquote normal, but they still feel bad. So they still have kind of bloating or diarrhea. And this can really lead to mental health troubles because it's kind of like a feedback loop. When you're feeling anxious about your body and your bodily functions and you just don't feel right, that can cause your mood to go down. And and then, you know, so it's this back and forth. And there's really just a lot more to learn in, in this area and focus on because I definitely get a number of people who've been found to like not have any trouble, but it's hard for someone to accept that when they're like, yeah, I know everything looks negative, but I don't feel right. You know, so they, they end up coming to me to just talk about that often too and try to cope with that. And and what do you do in medicine when we don't know the answer and some and we can't necessarily provide any further help? That's often a really terrible place too as a doctor because we're in a place where we want to help and we want to be able to give the answers. And when we can't, um, it's it's a real struggle. Um, you know, I I included in kind of thinking about this, since I didn't necessarily have a case to talk about and more just correlations, that there's also a really interesting thing I could touch upon called fecal transplant. So a fecal transplant for people who were listening is, um, you know, basically what it is, you know, transplanting feces um, through some interesting methods, sometimes um, through like a slushy um, and more of like a colonoscopy type setting or something that would be like that. Or actually they freeze dry them and put them in pills and they get swallowed. So so interesting. You probably weren't expecting to hear about this today. But there was an interesting meta-analysis that came out um, in 2020 from a, uh, the BMC Psychiatry Journal in the United Kingdom. And it was a review, like a meta-analysis of 28 papers that were published uh, of fecal transplants for psychiatric illness. So mostly people dealing with um, depression or anxiety. And this review was a mix of like preclinical studies because a lot of research always starts in animal work. Um, And so there was a mix of animal findings, a mix of animal and human studies that were together, and then a mix of human studies. There were eight human studies. Again, keeping in mind that each of these human studies was small, only about 20 people in each. But all of the studies showed that there was actually a decrease in depressive and anxiety-like symptoms after people received a fecal transplant from a healthy donor, um, which is interesting. And and one of the things that they found uh, was that 
the long-term effect wasn't necessarily consistent. So even though like on the various depression scales or anxiety scales that were taken, um, there was a return to baseline, like either 12 weeks after the transplantations, 20 weeks or six months later. Um, So interesting. Again, these are all things food for thought. No pun intended. Things to think about. Um, And I suspect listeners today weren't necessarily thinking about talking about feces, but it's really hard not to talk about the gut-brain connection and like, you know, poop doesn't come up. It just is inevitable, you know. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's super fascinating. And I've heard about fecal transplants for a lot of different things, even just inflammatory bowel disease and Mm -hmm. things like that. I didn't know that they were freeze drying them, putting it into capsules you have to take. Mm-hmm. I had, you know, heard more about doing it the colonoscopy way, putting it back where it came from sort of thing. But ooh, I don't know about the other way. That might be a little challenging. I know. <laughs> um, but I, I kind of wonder in some of these studies, if they looked at changing the diet. So did they, when they did the fecal transplants, did everything else stay the same? And maybe that's why everybody kind of went back in a few weeks to their baseline because they weren't able to foster and sustain those colonies that were giving the beneficial effects. Do you know if any of those studies, they changed diet or any other lifestyle factors? I didn't look through each of the 28 separately, but I don't think that they did. And that was where my mind went to as well. When I talk about the study as one of the things in my talks, I bring up that that idea that maybe one of the reasons why the changes aren't haven't been able to be sustained is because other elements of lifestyle haven't been changed as well that could support those colonies potentially. And um, it's definitely an interesting hypothesis and one that I hope that they focus on with like future papers. And who knows what other factors in our body make it more friendly, you know, besides the things that we're doing and eating, there could be other things that help sustain these colonies or not. But yeah, there's just so it's so complex. And there's so many layers to it. But it's fascinating to hear about that. And now for a very important message. Hey, mama, if you are feeling frustrated about mealtime battles, worried that your child isn't eating enough or eating enough vegetables, afraid that your child is going to get some awful deficiency or disease because of the lack of diversity in their diet, I wrote a book that might be for you. A Parent's Guide to Intuitive Eating, How to Raise Kids Who Love to Eat Healthy is available in paperback, ebook, and audiobook through all major online booksellers. Did you know that most children are born with the innate ability to eat the appropriate amount of food to satisfy their hunger and support appropriate growth? Despite this, parents are still anxious and confused about how much and what to feed their children. In addition, many children are labeled as picky eaters or develop behaviors such as hiding and sneaking food. There's also a growing epidemic of dieting behaviors and eating disorders beginning at alarmingly young ages. In my book, you'll learn the five pillars of healthy eating, how to apply intuitive eating through all the stages of development, lifestyle habits that support healthy eating and body image, troubleshooting and problem solving for picky eaters, overeating and dieting behaviors, how to create and foster a healthy body image in your children, how exploring your own body image and relationship with food will help raise an intuitive eater, and what foods to offer your child at different stages of development. A Parent's Guide to Intuitive Eating, How to Raise Kids Who Love to Eat Healthy, 
available in paperback, ebook, and audiobook through all major online booksellers. Are you ready for a fresh approach to feeding your child? For more information, visit dryami.com forward slash book. And now back to the episode. Well, I know that you have a background in yoga as well and even would regularly teach yoga. So tell me about how yoga and mindfulness can help people that are experiencing mood disorders and going through stressful times. Yeah. So I got training as a yoga instructor after I left residency. I always loved yoga. I thought it was so helpful. And then I started teaching at the hospitals that I worked at for patients and for staff. So we'd all do yoga together, which was really fun. But yoga is really wonderful, I think, because you're able to do two things at once. There's not many times in life where you can actually multitask. Your brain really can only truly focus on one thing at a time. It's just refocusing when you're doing multiple things at once. Um, But yoga allows you to truly do a few things at once, which is move your body, so doing movement, um, incorporating breath work, so thinking about deep inhales and exhales that you combine with how you're moving, and then lastly, having an intentional focus. So often in class, you might get um, something you have to refocus your attention to, which can be helpful in practicing mindfulness. Um, so instead of kind of dwelling on the past or or ruminating on the future, you're constantly recentering your attention back to the present. And I think yoga allows for an approachable step into mindfulness. You know, I bring up meditation and mindfulness often with patients, and it can be somewhat intimidating for people because I think if you've never done it, people's perception of it is, I need to turn off my brain. I need to stop thinking. And I tell people that's actually impossible. You can't do that. You know, just like your lungs breathe and your heart beats, your brain thinks. That's just what it does. So you're not necessarily going to be able to stop your mind from thinking, but you can refocus your attention away from bothersome thoughts without judgment, you know, so that's a whole nother layer. But practicing yoga helps you to observe your thoughts while you're moving and just kind of thinking like an ocean, you know, bring going rolling with the thoughts and bringing your mind back to the present. So I just love yoga because you're doing physical activity or movement and you're combining it with something else that's really helpful that other sometimes group activities or physical activity in general might not focus on. Um, So those are some of the benefits that I think yoga can provide for mental health. Yeah, and I think you're right. I think a lot of people can be intimidated by it. I know before I ever did yoga the first time, I thought yoga was going to be hard and painful, and that's not what I wanted. So when I actually had an experience where it just felt so amazing, and you know, that feeling I like to get that grounded and that centered, and then I was hooked after that, you know, but I, I'm not the power yoga type. So <laughs> I don't necessarily like to go to a yoga class to like drip sweat and feel everything hurting at once. But I'm more of a yin and shavasana girl, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I can sit oh, yeah. shavasana all day. I love it. So that's so <laughs> cool that you actually became, you know, certified and were able to teach it and have other people benefit from it around you. That's like a neat experience to have. What do you wish more people knew? Ooh, so I love this question. Um, So I I would say um, one is how hard it is to get the message of 
a plant-based diet out into the public and to change the definition of like healthy food. You know, there's so many obstacles around us and like the societal inertia that comes with this focus of like high protein diets and animal products is healthy, despite like research and evidence. And I think to myself, if it's this hard to just get this message out there to patients and to the public, um, this also reflects the challenges that can be presented in making the transition to a plant-based diet as a patient because of all the companies and advertisers that are telling people otherwise. You know, I think to... Uh, I like to say to patients, like, when's the last time you saw an advertisement for broccoli? Like, it just doesn't exist. You know, we're constantly being bombarded with, like, ads for fast food and health shakes and supplements that are just going to fix all of your ailments. Um, you know, one person I'm really loving right now is Eric Adams, like, the new mayor of New York City. Um, you know, his story and what he's doing in this space is just amazing. How he's helping to transform, like, school lunch options and partnering with hospitals to really offer plant-based foods. And we just really need more people like him um, advocating for this mission. You know, and the other thing that I wish more people knew, and I think we kind of touched upon this a little bit earlier, is that I wish we could untangle healthy eating from weight loss. You know, too many people are focusing on a healthy diet, meaning losing weight, you know, and being healthy, quote unquote, right, is so much more than just your weight. Yes, weight is important, you know, but it's just one aspect of health and feeling good in your body. You know, we need people to focus more on healthy behaviors. And then like the weight is a secondary thing that might change as a result. You know, and when people put these weight numbers up on a pedestal, I think it actually can inhibit people from making steps towards changing in their life because they'll say, well, if I'm never going to get to this number, then why should I even try? You know, but it's because you're going to improve your sleep. Your energy is going to be amazing. Your bowel habits are going to improve. Maybe your mood or your confidence, your blood sugars, your lipids, all of these things. Um, and I say, if you're doing all of these wonderful health habits and you're still like overweight, um, so be it. You know, at a certain point, like let's just kind of try to do the things to help our body feel good um, rather than focusing on like this one aspect. So, I mean, there's so many things I wish people knew, but for right now, like those are the two things that are at the top of my mind. Amen. I love it. I'm on board for all of it. And yes, I, I feel like I spend all day saying the same thing as well. And that's just really great because it's true. If we are focused only on the weight loss, it's almost like we don't care about everything else and nothing else seems worth it because it's such a big priority to be a certain size and weight. So I hope over time we slowly start to de-emphasize body size and instead focus on this well-being, how we feel, how we're interacting with our friends and family, you know, the ability we have, the energy we have to do the things we love to do because that's why we're here, right? To experience and explore and enjoy our lives. Mm -hmm. I'd love to know about your personal lifestyle habits. <laughs> Put you on the spot here. So do you have a morning routine and what are your go-to favorite foods and quick meals that you like to eat regularly? So, you know, my, my morning routine is not really very exciting. You know, I typically get up and get ready and go to the office and spoiler alert, I, I'm usually running late. So <laughs> I need to work, I need to work better at like getting up on time. But, but I you know, I usually don't actually eat breakfast, but I do have a London fog. So if you know me, you know, I love a London fog. And so for those of the people who have no idea what I'm talking about, it's basically like an Earl Grey tea with a little sweetener and some steamed milk. And I do steamed soy milk. And that is just my favorite thing. So 
my go-to foods, I love so many things, but I think to narrow it down, I would say chia pudding is something I really love. I mean, there's so many different variations you can make. It's so quick and easy. And if we're going to refocus on fiber, like chia pudding with berries is 19 grams of fiber. Just there you go. So it's just perfect. Um, And then I love oatmeal and like muesli with like fruit on top for something quick. I really love like West African peanut stew or soup. Um, It's like really easy, a one pot meal, great flavor, good for leftovers. You know, an Asian peanut slaw is something I often make too with like tofu on top and corn tortillas. It's very simple. And also my husband makes some really good popcorn. So we like love that. Um, But I mean, I could go on like plant-based is just the best and there's so many awesome things you can eat. I love it. Well, we could definitely hang out, Dr. Giallo, because I love all of those foods. But honestly, there's not very many foods I don't like. So I'm pretty easy to please. But yes, I just had chia pudding a couple of days ago. From We have one little smoothie bar here that's all plant-based and they make this chocolate chia pudding and they put strawberries and bananas and a little bit of agave and a little bit of bee pollen actually. And it's so, so good. I love it. Mm. Yummy, yummy. I love how you're very transparent and honest about how you're running late every morning too. Thank you for making it relatable for everybody. We appreciate you. (laughs) (laughs) No problem. Yeah, honesty is key. (laughs) Okay, this has been so good. Thank you so much for your time. I'd love to know how listeners can connect with you and what products and services you offer. Great. Yeah. So they can go to my website. It's um, bemedicine.org. So B-E, medicine spelled out to become a patient or for like health coaching. I also have an Instagram account at be.medicine. I'm also available for kind of speaking engagements. If you if you're a physician and listening to this, um, and subscribe to the primary care wrap podcast, you know, a few episodes that I'll be on are coming out soon. You know, I'm also in the process of putting together a newsletter for people to subscribe to whether they're patients or not. So you can keep a lookout for that. Those are the main ways to get in contact. And for psychiatry, I'm assuming it's just for people in your state. In Maryland and Virginia. Maryland Mm -hmm. and Virginia. But for health coaching, can you take people from anywhere? Yep. Yeah, I can. Perfect. Mm -hmm. Awesome. So bmedicine.com, correct? We'll make sure that we – at org. Okay. We'll put it everything in the show notes. So don't worry. You don't have to write anything down. Just go to the show notes and you can find it there. This has been fantastic. I have one more ask for you. If you can leave us with one tip for busy, overwhelmed moms, moms that might be experiencing anxiety, depression, coming out of this pandemic, it's been – one ride for real, what is the best thing that they can do to get started on the path to feeling better? So I would say, and this is going to be maybe disappointing for some people, but put your phone away. You know, on average, you know, we check our phones anywhere between 100 and 350 times a day. That's anywhere between once every four to 10 minutes. And we spend an average of three and a half hours on our phone. So we're all just wasting way too much of our precious time mindlessly scrolling and not even realizing it. You know, I often talk about healthy relationships in therapy. Um, And one that needs to be addressed, but it's often overlooked is the relationship we have with our phones. So I would challenge 
challenge people to take some time to reflect on your own relationship with your phone and the apps that you use and think about setting some maybe attainable realistic boundaries. So like some ideas would be maybe just check your email once in the morning and once in the afternoon if your job allows it. You know, limit Instagram to 30 minutes. Um, Don't look at your phone right when you wake up. I am guilty of that and I'm working on it, okay? Um, But put your phone on do not disturb or turn off all notifications because you want to be in control of the relationship. You don't want your phone telling you when to look at it. You want to tell your phone when you're going to look at it. So I think um, I would tell listeners to really relook at that relationship and see if there's anything you can do to change it. We all needed to hear that. Yes, it's difficult to hear. I feel like mine is probably 500 times a day that I check my phone. But the truth is I actually put, I decided probably like a month ago, I put my phone on do not disturb all the time. So it's perpetually on do not disturb because the dings and the, all the things it's, makes me feel anxious. And so my patients, my phone calls go straight through. So I have it set so that, you know, because I'm on call 24 seven, pretty much 365. So my patients can reach me and I'm not worried about that. But other than that, I don't check my phone unless I want to. So if feel like seeing if anybody texted me, I'll check a few times a day, but it's not, I'm not dependent on this phone. Always be like, check me, check me, check me, you know, because that was just way too anxiety provoking. But my area that I have, I struggle with is Instagram. I use this excuse that, oh, you know, like I just need to learn more of the trends because I want to make sure I put good content out there. But really, that's a lie. Really, I'm just like watching dog videos and funny videos, which is fun, but I spend way too much time on there. So I have to work on that one and set some good boundaries. So thank you, thank you, thank you so much for for giving us the talk that we needed to hear. Dr. Giallo, this has been fantastic. I really appreciate your time and you coming on the show to educate us and give us your experience and wisdom. I hope that my listeners will reach out to you and hop on board, get on your website, get on your Instagram so that they can learn more about you. And if you want to be a coaching client or if you're in Maryland or Virginia, you're looking for a psychiatrist that actually does psychotherapy, You need to see Dr. Giallo. So thank you so much for being on the show and I hope you have a very plantastic day. Thank you so much, Dr. Yami. You as well. I really enjoyed hearing from Dr. Giallo and hearing some of the stats that I wasn't aware of. I actually didn't know that 25% of us are going to experience anxiety at some point in our lives. One in four people are going to be affected by anxiety, which makes sense, especially nowadays. So what she was talking about when it comes to exercise and movement and how we can use it for our mental health is very impactful. If you do not have a good relationship with physical activity, maybe reframe it. If in the past you've been used to punishing your body to try to lose weight or maintain weight loss or get a certain physique, maybe think about it differently. Think about how it can affect your mental health and help you go throughout your day in a more positive way. So that's one thing. And then the stat about 90% of serotonin being produced in the gut, that's incredible. I had no clue it was that much. And so that, as we're learning more about it, I think is going to become even more and more important. Overall, really great episode. I hope you guys a lot out of it and that you will reach out to Dr. Giallo if you feel that she can help you on your journey. So thank you for 
hanging out with us today, veggie lovers, and have a very plantastic day. Hey, veggie lover, I hope that you loved today's episode. Will you take a second and do me a huge favor? Please subscribe to my podcast so that you never miss an episode. You're the reason I'm here and I want to share it all with you. Thank you for listening and have a plantastic day. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.